We're in Revelation tonight, Revelation chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And tonight we're going to study the, the church of Pergamos. Yeah, well, this is the church that wouldn't say no, or the compromising church. Yeah, <laughs> Father, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much, God, for your word and uh, God, we do want our worship to be unsullied by the world. We want it to be unmixed. God, we don't want to compromise or combine our faith with any worldly philosophy, God, any secular power. We pray, God, that you would refine us. And Lord Jesus, we want to be in a place where if you wrote a letter to us, there wouldn't be those sections that would say, nevertheless, I have this against you, or but I have a few things against you. We don't want to be in that place, God. We don't want anything in our lives to be against you. And so, Father, teach us. Teach us as a church. God, refine this church. It belongs to you. We humbly ask that you would consistently and constantly reveal anything that even slightly disappoints you or displeases you. And God, individually tonight, we bring our own hearts and we ask God that you would search us, search us. Father, we need you to search us. God, we need that voice of revelation that comes from the outside because God, we are just so often so blinded to those things that we justify in our own lives. And so, God, teach us tonight, instruct us. Your word says, he who has an ear to hear, and we pray tonight, God, that we would have two of those to offer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I had mentioned to you when we started this study that, um, in particular, when we jumped into the seven churches of Revelation, that when we consider the seven churches, you know, of course, there, there's four things to think about. Number one is that we're talking about literal, historical, geographical churches. I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, we know that to be true. In addition to, to that, I said to you that the condition of these churches can reflect our own spiritual condition at any given point in time. So kind of in a comprehensive way, as you look at the spiritual condition of these churches, we find ourselves landing uh, on that spot. And I'm not saying that that spot lasts necessarily forever. It, it changes. Sometimes we can find ourselves in a similar, similar place like Ephesus, or sometimes we may find ourselves in a place like Philadelphia. Um, but it really does provide a spiritual grid that we can map our own current spiritual condition by. Um, I'd mentioned to you number three, do you guys remember any of this? Just not, even if, you, well, don't do that because you'd be lying. So just, just give me that vacant, empty stare. Uh, number three, I'd mentioned to you that, that in addition to where we stand as individual believers, these seven churches also uh, give us a comprehensive picture of where we as a church can stand at any given point in time. So this is a great tool. The seven letters are a great tool for church leadership to use to find out you know, where the spiritual condition of that particular body of believers is at. And the fourth thing I mentioned to you was that, and I didn't really spend a lot of time developing this, 
Um, this is not necessarily taught a lot of times. Uh, this, you know, when you think about this particular aspect of the seven churches, uh, really, it's, it's a very subjective approach, and so I don't really spend a lot of time on it, but it is interesting. It's interesting enough to mention that these seven churches represent epochs of church history, so actual periods of time um, of church history that are reflective of what was happening in each of these individual churches. And if you're a student of church history, look, I don't think this is a, a really big stretch of the imagination to uh, conclude. Let me lay out for you how people typically break these epochs down. Uh, the church of Ephesus uh, really reflects uh, the condition of the church uh, from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to about 100 AD. This is the apostolic era um, this was when there was a really, really strong beginning, but the church found itself in a place where it was going through the motions and had, as Jesus said, left its first love. The se second epoch is the church of Smyrna. We talked about Smyrna last week, uh, and that's the persecuted church. This is about 100 AD to 311, right at the Edict of Milan, where Constantine allowed Christianity to be worshipped as one of the many religions that were worshipped in the Roman Empire, um, and that ceased the persecution of the church. It stopped Christians from being persecuted. So up to that time, the persecution had been absolutely rampant and uh, overwhelming for the church, not in the sense that it ceased the spreading of the gospel. We know that it expanded, in fact, the gospel, but the church was heavily persecuted. So that epoch is 180 to uh, 311 AD. Pergamus represents the epoch of about 311 AD to 500 AD, and this is the era of syncretism. This is when the church began to be uh, aligned with or fused with secular power. This is the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church and the combining of political, secular, governmental power, and religious authority. We're going to talk about syncretism a little bit tonight. Um, Thyatira represents the epoch from 500 to 1500 AD. Uh, Sardis represents the epoch of 1500 to 1800 AD. This is the, the era of the Protestant uh, Reformation, which was absolutely amazing, but then, of course, got to the point where it seemed as if that work was just in name alone, which is what Jesus said to that particular church. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The Church of Philadelphia represents the epoch from 880 to 1950 AD. Uh, and if you study church history, you know that this particular 150-year period was an absolute explosion of missions work, you know, particularly through the London Missionary Society. But international uh, missions, international evangelism, like just went straight into fifth gear at this point, and the Church of Philadelphia is the missions-minded church. And then the final epoch of church history um, is the Laodicean era, which is the lukewarm church, and most people believe that started at 19, in 1950 and goes to our present time. Uh, so, hey, you know, God bless you. God bless all of us. We're part of the Laodicean age, um, which two things with that. Number one, it really shouldn't come as a surprise uh, because we see that 
type of Laodicean attitude uh, all around us. But then it should also be kind of encouraging because that this is the final epoch of church history before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Paul said, that before the coming of the Lord, there would be a great falling away. So there are a lot of things that really do indicate um, that, you know, this isn't just a, an allegorical attempt at understanding church history, um, but things really do seem to be lining up. The church we're talking about tonight that was in Pergamos was the church that wouldn't say no. I, I didn't say couldn't say no. They were a church that wouldn't say no. And they're a church that stu struggled with syncretism. Like I said, syncretism is the fusion of Christianity with any other world religion or any other worldly philosophy. Um, it is the fusion of Christianity with secular, political, governmental power. And what we're going to see tonight is that these are things that Jesus doesn't like. So the Bible says in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, so right away, remember, we're working through uh, the standard outline of these letters to these churches, and we know he always starts with identification to the angel of the church, to the messenger of the church, most likely to uh, the lead elder or to the one who is responsible for teaching and shepherding that body of believers, not that there aren't other elders, but the one who really has that key responsibility to this particular church. Now, Pergamos was about 55 miles north of Smyrna. So um, if you go to a modern-day map and you find Izmir in modern-day Turkey and you go about 55 miles north, you'll run right into Pergamos. Um, it was not a seaside city. It was, in fact, 15 miles from the Aegean Sea. Uh, it is absolutely breathtaking and extraordinary. If you've had the opportunity to go to Pergamos with us, you know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, there was a vast city that sat at the bottom of a mountain, and then at the top of the mountain was a necropolis, a city that sat on top of the mountain about a thousand feet above the city that was at the foot of the mountain. And, you know, if you go there today, you've got to take a tram up. The views are absolutely amazing. They're extraordinary, just so picturesque. Uh, but at the top of the Acropolis, there was a giant altar to Zeus. A hundred square feet was the base. So this was the biggest. I do believe in uh, ancient history, this is the largest altar, known altar to the Greek god Zeus. Uh, and so you'll not only see that, but you'll also see the remains of this beautiful ancient Roman theater um, that seated about 20,000 people, and when you would sit in the theater, it was carved into the side of the mountain, so not only did you have the opportunity to see the play or whatever entertainment you were being entertained by, but behind that was the uh, backdrop of this beautiful valley. So it was an absolutely extraordinary city. Uh, it was a leader in education. There was a great university at Pergamos. Uh, it boasted a library that had 200,000 volumes in it, which was a really, really big deal in the ancient world. It was a leader in medicine. It had a medical school uh, that was devoted to the god Asclepius, who was the god of healing. Uh, he, that particular god that's worshipped is often identified by a serpent, a serpent on a pole, probably something that you're familiar with. Uh, it boasted the first school of psychology. So if you went to Pergamos in the ancient day, there were therapy pools, there was a mineral bath, there was a therapy tunnel. 
I mean, it was literally the place to go. Uh, it was a leader politically. It was called the greatest city in the ancient world, and it was in fact made the capital city of Asia. So it, it led in all of these areas. It also was a leader in religion. So in religious worship, interestingly enough, the word Pergamus is a compound word. Uh, half of the word means marriage. The other half means elevation. And most commentators believe that this is kind of a picture of how these people had married themselves. They'd married themselves to the worship of these gods, not just from a secular perspective, but, or, you know, a, a non-Christian perspective, but even for these Christians, how there was syncretism, there was compromise. They had married the faith of the gospel with other things. There was the worship of Zeus in this city, there were 25 pagan religions that were worshipped in this city, and there was also a temple that was dedicated to the worship of Caesar. So emperor worship, we'll talk about this in a minute, um, because this really created a lot of conflict for believers who were living in Pergamos. Uh, emperor worship was, this really was one of the center cities for em emperor worship in all of the Roman Empire. So this is the church at Pergamos. He not only identifies the church, but he gives personal revelation that is um, important for them to remember. He says, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So remember, he takes a piece of that revelation that was given to John in John chapter 1, and he pulls it out because um, it's important for these believers to remember something about the Lord, some qualities, some characteristics, some attribute of Christ that they had forgotten that had kind of led them to a place where they had gotten off track. Well, what was it that this church had forgotten? They had forgotten that he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember, this was what John saw, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, you know what the sharp two-edged sword is. Are we talking a, a literal physical sword? What are we talking about? We're talking about the word of God. And the two-edged aspect of the word of God is interesting because on the one hand, it it divides uh, in a way of justice or judgment, and on the other hand, it heals and restores. And I think that Jesus is reminding this church that his word brings division. His word brings division. You know, he in fact said this to his disciples. He said, don't think that I came to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Now, you're thinking, well, wait a minute. The angel said, uh, you know, this was the declaration to the shepherds. Peace unto men, peace and goodwill unto men. That was the declaration when Christ was born. And so, so on the one hand, you think, well, wait a minute, didn't the angel say that he was going to bring peace? And then on the other hand, Jesus is now saying that he came not to bring peace, but a sword, but division. And the truth is this, Christ divides. The word of the Lord divides. It separates. It divides between truth and error. It divides between those who know him and those who do not know him. Um, it is a clear divide. It is not confusing. It is not murky. It is um, not ambiguous. You know, the word of God, the Bible says, is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword to the extent that it is able even to divide asunder the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Remember, I mentioned to you there were two swords that were used during this era in battle. One was a short sword that was used for hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
The other was a Thracian sword. It was a, a long, heavy sword that would kill a person with a single blow. This is the word that's used here for sword. And so it, it, it is as if, I do believe, that Christ is uh, presenting that element of judgment and justice with respect to his word. And why was this important for this particular church? Because they were compromising in their doctrine. And because they were compromising in their doctrine, they were also compromising in their behavior. Uh, there was a syncretism. We're going to see this in just a little bit. There was a syncretism because, and this is really the story of the church of Pergamos. It was not an easy place to live. We'll see in just a moment. Very, very difficult place to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And there were those who were struggling to the extent that they started to shape their own doctrine to accommodate ungodly behavior to alleviate some of the adversity and persecution that they were dealing with as Christians. In other words, they were saying, hey, listen, it's not really a big deal. We can, we can compromise, we can mix, we can marry our Christian faith to these other religions and other faiths and other philosophies and ideas. We can align ourselves with the secular powers that be in the, in the guilds and you know, other influences and you know what? In doing this, we can still kind of maintain our Christianity, but we can escape the adversity. We can, we can get a break from the persecution. You know, is that ever? I mean, I think it's an important question to ask ourselves because while there may not be a lot of persecution that we deal with here in our nation, I'm not sure if that condition with respect to our Christianity is going to last forever. I think it's going to be become harder and harder to be a true, genuine, sincere believer in Jesus Christ. I think that, you know, certainly we see we live in the days of Noah. Evil is being called good. Good is being called evil. And those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And there's going to be, listen, make no mistake about it, there's going to be the temptation to water down to make minor compromises, to soften the message, to soften the blow, to change our vocabulary, to make it not so decisive or divisive uh, or difficult for other people to hear or to respond to. And I think that that is syncretism with the world. This was what they were tempted with. He has an issue with this church, and he says this in verse 13. He starts with commendation. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So listen, I mean, I, I think, wow, what a heavy thing to hear Jesus say. Listen, I know, I, know where, I know where you live. I know it's not easy to the extent that you actually live literally where Satan dwells. I mean, that would be... It was probably coming as no surprise to them, I would imagine. But still, to hear it from the words of, of Christ, to hear it from the mouth of Christ, to hear it through a letter that Christ has written would be a pretty amazing thing to hear. You know, it was a hard, wicked city to live in. Ancient Pergamos was probably like modern-day Las Vegas, a challenging, a spiritually challenging place. There, I just want to kind of go through some of the things that were happening in this city. If you lived there, you would have seen regularly the worship of Asclepius, 
which like I said, was the God of healing. Uh, he was represented by a serpent, and this literally was serpent worship. Now, some people say Jesus said that this is where Satan's uh, throne is, the dwelling place of Satan, Satan's headquarters, because, you know, you know, of course, Satan is the serpent of old. Um, but it was, a pretty, it was a pretty sick thing to see people worship this false god. There was a temple to Asclepius that sat at the top of the Acropolis. Um, there were priests to this particular false god. Part of participating in the worship of this god included not only sexual rituals, but the sick people would flock to this temple from all over the world. And the temple itself, this is what some historians say, the temple itself was covered with serpents, with snakes. And what you would do in an effort to be healed, you would go into the temple and you would lay there flat on the floor of the temple and allow these snakes to crawl all over your body. Pretty miserable picture. We have a video for you here tonight. No, we don't have that. That would be disgusting. But the idea was that if you were touched by this serpent, which represented the god Asclepius, then possibly you would be healed. Um, some historians say this. In fact, one historian said this. Asclepius had the power to raise from the dead, and he himself was restored to life by Zeus. This is how uh, the myth goes. For this reason, he was thought to have also a snake form, and tame snakes were kept in his temples as these Animals were regarded as a symbol of regeneration. So through their molting, the idea was that they actually had the power to regenerate a person. So this was common practice in the city of Pergamos. Like I had mentioned to you, there was uh, the worship of Zeus. This was the, really the central place for the worship of Zeus in Asia Minor. That giant altar to Zeus, the base of it still is there today, 100 square, square feet uh, in dimensions. And then in addition to that, there was a, a temple to Caesar. Now, some people say that this was the first temple dedicated to Caesar worship. So it was dedicated, uh, historians say, in 29 BC to Caesar Augustus. And in fact, as you look at historical documents, this seems to be the first mention of Caesar worship. So, so I'm saying all of this to say, like, you know, you would see that from a physical perspective. You would see Asclepius worshipped. You would see Zeus worshipped. You'd see 25 other pagan gods and goddesses worshipped. Uh, you would see this temple to Caesar. There, it, was, it was demanded of the people in Pergamos to take a pinch of incense and to go into the temple of Caesar once a year and offer it on the altar of fire and say that Caesar is Lord. You would see that in a physical sense. If you could see behind the veil of the physical, what you would see would be demonic hordes buzzing in and out of Pergamos. Like you would see the spiritual activity because you know the Apostle Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So if you're living in Pergamos at the time, you know all of those things that you're seeing with your eyes really are just a veneer of the spiritual reality that lies beyond. And when Jesus says, hey, this is literally where the throne of Satan is, remember with me that Satan is not an omnipresent being. It's not as if he can be in all places at once. Be careful, please, tonight. Do not give, do not attribute to the enemy more power than he really has. Some people, the way they talk about Satan almost sounds like they're talking about the equal opposite of Jesus. 
And I just want to remind you that Satan is not the equal opposite of Jesus Christ. He is not the, yang, the yin to Jesus' yang, all right? Jesus is almighty. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus has created all things, Paul says, both things that are seen and things that are unseen. Satan is a created being. He wasn't created as Satan. He was created as Lucifer. He, he was an angel of light. He was perfect in all of his ways until corruption was found within him. And then he asserted himself. There are seven I will statements that are made by Satan, by Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14. If you want to read this later on, you can. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, Revelation 12. Those are three key areas where we establish our theology concerning our literal adversary, right? Not, not myth, not fairy tale, not fable. We have a literal adversary. Jesus does not talk about Satan in allegorical terms. You know, there is a spiritual reality beyond the world that we see with our physical eyes. And you know that's true in the city of Las Vegas. I, I think sometimes we, we lose sight of that. Look, we just get accustomed to looking at the strip or driving down the strip. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the strip is the only place where evil or wickedness takes place. But let me tell you, there are spiritual strongholds on the strip. There are spiritual strongholds. And you know that that's the case because you see the, the, the evidence, you see the manifestation of it, you see the exploitation, sexual exploita exploitation of women, of men, of children, you see the exaltation of greed, of lust, of gluttony, like typically, I think you would agree with me that those things that are so heavily marketed that attract people to our city are those things that God hates. What is behind that? Well, there are spiritual principalities and powers that exist behind that, which is one reason why I believe Las Vegas would be an amazing place for a revival, an amazing epicenter for a revival to break out nationally, because no one is going to expect, I'm just telling you, no one's going to expect that the revival that we pray for is going to start in the city of Las Vegas. Nobody is. I mean, I talk with pastors all the time. And, you know, you should hear what some pastors say. They're like, oh, man, you live in Las Vegas. I, I feel so bad for you. Are there any churches in Las Vegas? You know, and they look at me like, how can you actually be a Christian? How can you be a Christian? How can you be okay? How can you be okay with living in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, let me tell you something. God loves the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? What an amazing place to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget this, okay? The second time we moved back, the second time we moved to Las Vegas, we've lived here twice, we're a glutton for punishment, and the second time was even, I think, more uh, spiritually jarring than the first time. We moved from Southern California to here the first time. We went and planted a church in New England, you know, which has got its own culture, right? I mean, there, there's just a, it's a different culture in New England. And coming back, there was such a shock coming back to the city. And the city had changed a lot. But I remember looking at the strip and being so grieved and broken over the lostness and thinking the, the, the words that were going through my mind were the words that Jesus said to his disciples about the proclamation that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, where he said to them, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I look at the strip and I think, Lord, those are the gates of hell. 
Help us to go in boldly in your name and pluck people like brands out of the fires of hell. And I don't ever want to get to a place where I lose that spiritual edge and just become so accustomed to life as normal in the city of Las Vegas. God, help us not to get to that place. So are you with me tonight? Okay. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Um, He says to them that they held fast to his name and did not deny, did not deny his faith. So the phrase hold fast means to seize with an unrelenting grasp. It means to seize with an unrelenting grasp. And so when they started, this church seized, they held on to the name of Jesus and they were absolutely unwilling to let go. I love that. I love that. I mean, they were clinging to the name of Christ even when there was great opposition and adversity. You know, for many people in this particular church, I'd mentioned to you last week the guilds that most of these people worked in, whether it was textile or mineral or whatever it was, the guilds were centered around the worship of false gods and goddesses. And so to be a part of a guild, to be a part of a union, to actually have a job, it also meant that you had to worship false gods and goddesses. And if you didn't do that, you were normally kicked out of the guild. Um, And then if business wasn't going good, you were always the scapegoat. You were always the reason why, because the gods were responding with disfavor because you were unwilling to worship them. And so Christians really did have a choice. You know, are they going to suffer social persecution and economic persecution and physical persecution and hold on to the name of Jesus, or would they just let go or compromise or accommodate something that was false. Well, there was a period of time where they lived faithfully, holding tightly to the name of Jesus, to the extent that Jesus himself mentions an individual, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus says, man, to the extent where where Antipas, you know, I love the very fact that Jesus knows this guy by name. And I hope that ministers to you tonight, because sometimes I do think, you know, we sit in a room with a a lot of people in it, we can get lost in just, you know, sometimes the vastness of the concept of Christianity and think that we're just a name among many names, but the beautiful thing is this, he knows your name. And Antipas was one of these individuals who was willing to hold tightly to the name of Christ no matter what came his way. His name means against all. And truly, that was the situation that he was in. Antipas was the bishop of Pergamos, and he was actually, church history tells us, ordained by John the Apostle. Um, Tertullian, the anti-Nicene church father, said that he was a doctor. Antipas was actually a doctor who had given his life to Christ. He had become, like I said, the bishop of Pergamos, And so he had at one point in time been knee-deep in the worship of Asclepius. He probably had led people in the worship of Asclepius. And, And yet there was this transformation, there was this change in his life, he'd given his life to Jesus Christ, and he had discarded all of the false religions that he had been worshiping. And the leader of the city, you know, he was dragged out of his home, he was, you know, uh, challenged with physical martyrdom, 
And the leader of the city said this to him, Antipas, the whole world is against you. And his response to the leader of the city was this, then I am against the whole world. And I think, man, what tenacity, what boldness, you know, to be in a place where we're so strong in our faith. And I, there's, a, there, there's a song that, you know, was sung a long time ago. We don't really sing it anymore. Though none go with you, still I will follow you know, unfortunately, our faith is so often predicated on the whims of the people around us, and we can be like the wave that's tossed to and fro instead of just having ourselves planted firmly upon the name of Jesus Christ. There is a story that says, you know, Antipas made this declaration. He was then take, taken, and he was put in a brass bowl, this bowl, this idol that had been hollowed out. He was placed in this brass bowl. There was wood placed around this, this idol. The wood was lit on fire, and he was literally roasted alive. Um, but he maintained his faith in the Lord. What an awesome story. Verse 14, but I have these few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So, Hey, he commends this church, and he says there, there's, there was a period of time where the vast majority of you were steadfast in your faith. You know, you weren't caving. You, you weren't hiding. You weren't concealing yourself. You weren't just closet Christians. You weren't compromising in your faith to the extent where some of you even gave your life. And I know every one of you by name, but something has happened in the church that I have against you, a few things that I have against you. And this is how he describes it. He says, there are those there. You have those there. There are people among you. He is not saying it's all of you, but he is saying you have people among you who hold this doctrine of Balaam. Now, if you don't know who Balaam is, I want to encourage you to go back into the Old Testament and read Numbers chapter 22 to chapter 24. You can also reference 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Um, these are two places that talk about Balaam, who was a prophet. And, you know, just really quickly, this is kind of how the story goes. Children of Israel have been uh, freed from Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert. They're making their way up to the promised land. Um, the Amalekites have been victoriously conquer conquered. And the king of Moab knows what's happened to the Amalekites, and he's like thinking this through. He's like, I don't want the same thing to happen to us that happened to the Amalekites. And so they find this prophet. His name is Balaam. He actually is a prophet of the Lord, and they hire him to pronounce a curse against the Israelites. And there's a whole story that goes with this. But what happens ultimately is every time it's impossible for, for Balaam to pronounce a curse because God said to him, don't you dare say anything except that which I tell you to say. So every time Balak is expecting to hear a curse come out of Balaam's mouth, what he hears is a blessing instead. And he gets frustrated. He's like, dude, what's the deal, man? I'm dropping you down a bunch of quan here. I'm paying you a lot of money and you are cursing these people. You're blessing them. And what Balaam does at the very end is this. He's like, listen, you know, I can't curse them, but I, what I can do is tell you this. If you want to get these people, what you need to do is convince them to compromise, convince them to commit sexual immorality, 
And then what's going to happen is they'll be so displeasing to God that God will judge them. God will deal with them. And so he instructed Balak to lead the people of Israel into compromise. And that's what Balak did. He sent the Moabitess women to the Israelites. They compromised in that they engaged in sexual, sexual relationships that were uh, it was fornication in the first place, but it was also outside of their own country. So we've got a double whammy here. And in their compromise, what ends up happening is God ends up judging them. But this was precisely what was happening in this church. There were those individuals in this particular church who were compromising on doctrine. They were saying, listen, it's okay. I know there's a lot of persecution and there's adversity, but God understands and it's not going to really matter to him if you eat something that's sacrificed to an idol and engage in sexual immorality. These two things were tied together. And it's important to remember that because if you're a student of God's word, you're remembering the council of Jerusalem where Paul and Barnabas went and said all that God was doing among the Gentiles. And the encouragement, the exhortation was, hey, tell them to... Uh, not engage themselves in sexual immorality and to not things, eat things sacrificed to idols. These two things were tied together here in this false doctrine in the church of Pergamos. And it wasn't just a matter of uh, an indiscretion. It wasn't just a matter of accidentally eating something that had been offered to a false idol. They were saying, God understands the difficulty of your situation, and so in your situation, it's okay for you to compromise. And Jesus says, I have this against you, because compromise is never justified. Compromise is never justified. And individuals that would create a doctrine out of this actually find themselves aligned against Christ. You know, when we put our trust and faith in Christ, we repented of those things. We turned away from those things. We acknowledged that those things were false in the eyes of God. You know, like I would said this morning, there's a vertical element to, to sin primarily, right? When we sin, we sin against God. And we, when we repent, we're turning away from that sin. Metanoa, where there's a change of attitude towards that action, towards that behavior and our disposition towards it. We're choosing to see it the way that God sees it, and then we're making a U-turn, and we're not engaging in it anymore because it was leading us away from God. We are making a U-turn, and now we're choosing to follow God. That's what repentance is, and repentance isn't just partial. Repentance is lifelong, all right? It is a lifelong process. It should be a consistent part of your prayer life. There is always something to acknowledge and confess before the Lord. Maybe it's an attitude. Somebody, somebody affirmed that tonight, so I'm not the only person that's left hanging out here in the wind, all right? Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe, maybe it's an ungodly attitude. Don't tell me you didn't have some ungodly attitude this week. Don't tell me there wasn't some disposition about a person. Don't tell me that someone, you know, who cut you off didn't rile up your ire you know, don't tell me there, that there wasn't something that was provocative to you on social media. And so instead of holding your tongue and, you know, not letting your fingers fly, you let loose, right? I mean, there's always something for us to confess before the Lord. Paul himself, at the end of his life, before he was martyred for his faith, 
He said that he was the chief of all sinners. Now, Paul was not saying that he was living in a backslidden state. I think that Paul was looking back on his life and remarking about how far he was from God when he came to Christ. But I think also that Paul, over the course of time, had grown so close to the Lord. And as you grow close to the Lord, you do really recognize how far away you are, how much more you have to grow. And when I say you, I mean me, I'm talking we, I mean us. When we put our trust and faith in Christ, we left a life of compromise and we chose, we made a decision to follow Jesus with everything that we had. And it wasn't just that there were individuals who were compromising, there were people who would actually establish this as doctrine. They were teaching that this is an okay thing to do. And there were individuals that were following them. Listen, this is prevalent within Christianity today. Don't think this is just a 2,000-year-old issue that the church at Pergamos dealt with. You can go online and you can heap up for yourselves all sorts of Christian teachers who will advocate to you a life of syncretism, a life of compromise, where you can have the best of both worlds, where you can live in sin and still know the Lord. And I'm telling you, when you hear that, when you hear messages that, that convey this attitude that grace for you is a license to sin, understand that that does not come from God. That does not come from the Word of God. And those individuals, they're not prophets. They're not God's teachers. They're not God's raised up ones. They actually are not aligned with the Lord and will find themselves in a place where he is actually fighting against them. 2 Corinthians 6.15 says this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And then he says this, Therefore come out from among them and be separate. The second thing that he says as far as bad doctrine is this, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, there are a couple of different views on who these Nicolaitans were. This is not the only time they're going to be mentioned in these seven letters. Um, this is a compound word as well. Nico means uh, overcome or victory. This is where we get our English word, our brand Nike from. It was a goddess that was worshipped, the goddess of victory. And laetans is laity or people. So we're talking about victory over the people. Um, or, you know, my personal view on this is we're talking about people who put themselves in a position as far as church hierarchy where they were lording it over the laity. They were lording it over the laity. They were using their position within the church to be abusive, to, to bully people. They were dictatorial leaders. They were little religious Caesars. Um, they had taken this position that maybe at one point in time had been God-given, but now it was being used to satisfy their own personal desires at the expense of the people. And I just want to remind us all, that is not the way Jesus ever lived his life. That is not the way Jesus demonstrated the right pathway to shepherding people. You remember what he said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? He didn't say, beat my sheep, he, right? He didn't say, flog the folks. He didn't say, crush the crowd. He said, feed my people, feed my lambs, shepherd them. 
This is what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5. He called him the great shepherd, the great overseer of our souls. And so shepherd, this is what Paul said to the elders at Miletus, shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. You know, leadership in the church doesn't exercise authority at the expense of people. Leadership in the church uses authority to serve people. I mean, the whole picture is inverted. The whole picture is inverted, right? I mean, the world's view of leadership is this pyramid where, you know, the vast majority of people sit on the bottom rung and then, you know, you like cream float to the top and you sit at the top. You've arrived when you're the pastor or you're the apostle or you're the evangelist or you're the teacher or you're the prophet. Um, the world's view is if, if we are compromising, if there's a syncretism with our idea of, of spiritual authority, we have this view like the world views it, where those particular people in positions of power sit at the top, but that's not what Christ taught. He, had, he taught an inverted pyramid where the people actually are at the top and the leaders are underneath serving. He gave this example, of course you remember, in John chapter 13, one of the very last things that Jesus did and he girded himself and he washed the feet of his disciples and he said to them, if I, your master, have done this to you, you should do this to one another. I think, it is my view, and I think honestly that there's a, there's a, a day of accounting, a, a day of reckoning that has come for the church because a lot of people have been using their spiritual authority to be abusive and Jesus is pulling He's pulling the curtain back in a sense, and he's addressing that issue. This is the same issue that was happening at Pergamos. There was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and it was the idea that leaders have free reign to be abusive or to, to bully or to be dictatorial. And this is what he says in verse 15. This, these are the words of Christ, which thing I hate. I hate it. Man, I mean... There aren't a lot of times where Jesus says specifically that there is something that he hates. This is something that he hates. Verse 16, he says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, this is fascinating and you've got to take note of all of the pronouns here. He, he says, repent. He says to the whole church, to the whole church. Remember, he's identified individuals that have these false doctrines that exist within the church, but he didn't just call those individuals to repent. He calls the whole church to repent. He calls the whole church to be responsible for what was happening in their midst. You, in other words, all y'all, all y'all have allowed this. You've accommodated this. You've not held each other accountable. You've not drawn a line in the sand, and so you all need to turn course. And if you don't, these are such striking words, I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Those among you who hold these false doctrines, who are teaching my people to compromise, I will fight against them. What an what a, can you imagine being one of those people in the church that's propagating this false doctrine and then to hear that Jesus is coming quickly? We're not talking about the rapture. We're not talking about the second coming. We're talking about coming in justice to his church. Coming in judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord coming to his church. 
and saying, hey, listen, this is an or else statement. Like his parents, you use or else all the time. Hey, clean your room or else I fill in the blank. Or you're in the workplace. Hey, fix this thing or else. But we've got Jesus. Jesus, the one who holds a little lamb around his shoulders, right? Jesus, the one who is clothed in shepherd's garments, saying, if you don't deal with this issue, I will come quickly and I will deal with it myself. I will fight against those people. But it's not just about them responding. It's about you as a church taking responsibility for your collective compromise. Let's have you. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So he wraps all of this up with a a beautiful motivation. And of course, there's that consistent exhortation to overcome. Listen, he, he says to overcome, not to be overcome. In the world we live in today, I think it's easy to feel overcome by the world. But he says to these believers, you need to be an overcomer. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That is how we overcome. And this beautiful encouragement, number one, he says that he'll give some of the hidden manna to these individuals to eat. Now, of course, you know, as you're a Bible student, that there was in the Ark of the Covenant uh, a golden pot that had some of the manna that was placed in it. A tradition says that Jeremiah pulled that manna out, um, and some tradition says that Messiah is going to reveal that manna when he comes again. I don't know really about any of that last part. I think what he's saying here is this, I will be the one to sustain you. This is what manna was. It was food from heaven. He is saying to them, yes, you're going to make a stand. Yes, you're going to choose not to compromise. Yes, you're not going to combine your faith with a worldly philosophy or worldly religion or with the secular powers. And it's going to cost you, but I'm sufficient for you. You're going to get resistance. You're going to get rejected. But in all of that, I will be the one who sustains you. Jesus said in John 6, verse 35, on the bread of life, he who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. When you are in that place of making the decision to either suffer for the Lord or to flee from that adversity, I want to remind you to be steadfast to be steadfast, because as you step into that adversity, make no mistake about it, Christ will provide for you absolutely every single thing that you need to be victorious. Jesus will not leave you hanging. He will not leave you hanging. And in, that, in the midst of rejection, you will find yourself even more strengthened, like the three young Hebrew boys in the midst of that fiery furnace, because Christ will be present with you. Number one, he'll sustain you. The second thing, this white stone, uh, a new name written on it that no one knows except those who receive it. What is this white stone? Well, possibly two things. Uh, In the Colosseum at the time, uh, to get admission, you didn't have an iPhone, and so you you didn't have Ticketmaster, 
to open up your Apple wallet to be able to show that you have your digital ticket, what you did have is you had a white stone with your name that was written on it. And this would give you admission into the Colosseum. And so uh, it's possible that this is just symbolic of, is, is metaphorically speaking of acceptance into the kingdom of God. Um, also possibly, don't forget with me, that the Urim and the Thummim, which were used for judgment in ancient Israel, a pouch that the high priest had to discern the will of God. Is God for this? Is God not for this? Does God want this? Does God not want this? He would reach into this pouch and he would pull out a stone. White would be yes, black would be no. And so it's possible that this is referring to that. And simply Jesus is saying, I have said yes to you. I have said yes to you. I've not rejected you. I've not turned you away. I have accepted you. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So listen, in other words, I think that these were uh, future blessings that Christ would bring to each of these people, a heavenly, unique heavenly name that one day he will reveal to us. But I also believe there are current encouragements for them where he is saying, number one, you take that step. All right, you draw the line in the sand. You're going to be immovable. What the what Pergamus needs is not compromising Christians. What Pergamus needs are people who will lay down their life for the gospel. And when you do that, be assured, make no mistake about it, I will sustain you. I will be the one who who will satisfy you. Even though the world rejects you, I will keep you. And in addition to that, I have accepted you. You have nothing to fear. What can man do to you? The worst possible thing is that man can take your life. But all that means is that you will live with me in heaven forever. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray tonight. Oh God, thank you. Thank you so much. Help us in these days that we're living in to, to be steadfast. God, to be steadfast in the small ways that we're confronted with. Every single day, God, maybe it's in our family. Maybe as Christians, there's opposition among our siblings or with our parents. Maybe even in our marriage. Maybe it's with our friends. Father, perhaps in the workplace. God, we know that there is an anti-God sentiment in this culture that we live in. And so for all of us, there is a, a price to pay. God, I pray that in these days we would not be compromising. We would not combine our pure faith in you with some ungodly, idolatrous worship. Teach us, Lord. Instruct us. If there's any way that we have compromised God, if there's any way that we're taking the spiritual authority that you've given to us or even our standing with you as part of the family of God, if we've used that to beat people over the head, God, if we've used that to abuse or to afflict the lost or even other brothers and sisters, show us, make us like Jesus. We want to be like him. We want to live like him. We want to use the authority and the, and the power that, 
that you give to us in a way that honors you, always for the benefit of others and always for your glory. Lord, we pray in these last days that you would guard us from slipping into a Laodicean type of attitude. Help us to really stand strong in our faith and to be uncompromising. In Jesus' name.